So, brothers and sisters, we, we all look for good news in our day, and uh, God's Word certainly provides it. Uh, the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed throughout God's Word, uh, whether by prophecy, prefiguration, or promise in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament by the historical record of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. The Gospel writer Mark even uses the word in the Greek that means good news. Uh, He writes at the start of his Gospel, the beginning of the Gospel, that is, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So from the beginning, we ought to note that Mark's uh, opening line is one that brings together uh, not only past prophecy, but also the record of present, or for him at least recent, uh, history in his day, as well as the hope of future significance and great glory. Uh, Think about this with me, that Mark writes of the gospel of Jesus. It will become clear that he means Jesus of Nazareth, a man that uh, some of his readers may have even seen grow up before their eyes. Uh, The emphasis here is on the fact that the Gospels, not just Mark's Gospel, but but all four Gospels, were written as historical accounts of things and events that the Gospel writers saw with their own eyes. But it's not just Jesus, but Jesus Christ, which means that in his Gospel record, Mark is already reporting and uh, proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. When we see the word Christ, we may tend to take it for granted. Jesus Christ, what two words could ring more naturally uh, upon our ears? But remember who Mark is originally writing to. He he was writing to, uh, to Jewish readers who had grown up hearing their parents say, uh, He is coming. The Christ is coming. We, we don't know when, but He is coming, and He will be our Savior and our King. And now Mark is writing to such Jewish-minded people, we, we might say, essentially saying, here is the story of the Christ whom you were expecting, who has now come, although you might have missed it. In fact, you you might even have been involved in the active rejection of this very same Christ, (coughs) whose coming has been promised for thousands of years. But then where is the future? The past is found in the word Christ, the the one promised by God for thousands of years. The present is found in the name Jesus. Uh, The future is found in Mark's reference to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can only be a reference to an eternal Christ, a King and Savior who will remain and rule forever. And given that he was promised to come and did come in human form, it can only be a reference to the resurrected Christ. The Apostle Paul even writes in in Romans 1 verse 4, 
that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So can we hear it? From the beginning, even by way of His opening line, Mark is proclaiming to us the good news of a Savior, both human and divine, both God and man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this by way of introduction to Mark's gospel, which brings us to continue in Mark's introduction, and the first point being this, the good news of a new creation. We've already made note that the word gospel means good news, but by speaking of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark is doing something special. If we think about it, how many books have you ever read in in our day that say in the first line, here is the beginning? Uh, Wouldn't that be rather unnecessary to say, here is the beginning? For example, when I started this sermon, my first line was not, here is the beginning of my sermon. Uh, You knew it was the beginning, even as maybe you began waiting for the end. Uh, so, So why does Mark begin his gospel with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is that he is making an allusion, not illusion, but allusion. By referring to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark is alluding to, he is borrowing from another portion of Scripture. He is beginning his gospel in the same way that the book of Genesis begins. And here is a point where we need to face up to something. Either Mark is being terribly presumptuous by doing this, or he truly has an amazing message for us by referring to all that he is about to write as the beginning. Once again, why say at the beginning that this is the beginning unless Mark is telling, is truly telling us of a beginning, even a new beginning in the history of the world. And not to detract from the Gospel of Mark, but the Gospel of John does the same thing, and John does it even more clearly. John writes in John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Apostle John as well sets up the story of our Lord's life and ministry as a new beginning. Genesis 1 verse 1 records, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so when John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, we are expected to make the connection. And in like manner, when when Mark begins his gospel by writing the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it should be abundantly clear, first of all, that he's about ready to tell the story of Jesus Christ, but it should also be clear that Mark is about ready to tell us the story, literally, of a new creation. It's been said here before, and it's uh, worth reviewing, that there are three ways that God's Word speaks of salvation. First, as, as we are seeing here, salvation comes by a new creation. Nothing less than God's work in Christ for a new creation 
will save sinners from their sin. Second, God's word also teaches that salvation is the matter of the new birth. Jesus himself taught this most plainly in in John 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus and he said, you must be born again. It can also be translated born from above. You must be born from above. And Jesus made it plain that he was talking about salvation, how one is saved when he said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Third, by way of uh, the teaching of God's word, salvation comes about by nothing less than resurrection. This might, uh, this might not sound as strange to us because we know that it was by the, the suffering, the death, and resurrection of Christ that we have a Savior alive in whom to believe and, and be saved. But it's more than that. It's, it's not just that Jesus had to die and rise again. It's that the sinner is dead in sin and must be resurrected unto life and faith and salvation. God's plan of salvation was exactly for that to happen, so that that is how it happens. Even even the resurrection of Christ accomplishing the salvation of sinners. Paul makes this plain and clear when he writes in Ephesians 2, not only that sinners are dead in sin, not only that they are raised up, resurrected, when they are saved, but that it is Christ's resurrection that accomplishes the sinner's salvation by resurrection. Well, we review all this, these three ways that God's Word talks about salvation, in order to understand more fully, at least as fully as we are able to grasp it, the monumental significance of the coming and the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. His saving work did not make salvation available. His saving work certainly did not just make salvation possible, but he accomplished salvation, even bringing about a new creation, even providing a new birth, even resurrecting those who were dead in sin. We can settle for salvation by faith. We God's Word teaches this too. How does salvation come to us? How how are we saved? By faith, by believing in Christ. But there is more to believe than just the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. There, There is the grace and the glory of knowing further that Christ has brought salvation through a new creation. A second point to be made as we introduce the Gospel of Mark is the force of prophecy. No sooner has Mark begun his Gospel when he is quoting prophecy and teaching us the fulfillment of prophecy in the coming of Jesus. Verse 2 reads, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will, dec- who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. First of all, here we ought to just point out the reason for prophecy. To some degree, we could even ask, why did God wait thousands of years before sending his son 
And in the meantime, promise his coming and prefigure his person and prophesy his ministry. In this case, in Mark 1, verse 2, it's a, it's a prophecy not only of his coming itself, but also of another event connected to his coming, the ministry of John the Baptist. But why the prophecy of the Old Testament? Why the long-drawn-out coming of Christ over thousands of years? Well, God himself gives us the answer in the book of Isaiah From Isaiah, chapters 41, here's a reading assignment for you in in God's Word this week. Isaiah 41 through chapter 48, the same explanation is given several times over. But here's one of them. Here's Isaiah 45, starting in verse 31. God says through the prophet, Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Well, throughout the gospel record of Christ's life and ministry, there really is an amazing combination of his humiliation and his revealed glory. We see it already in his birth that uh, he was born to a simple peasant girl laid in a manger and visited by common shepherds. But there is much glory in the birth of Christ as he was born of a virgin by a great miracle of God as a star appeared to mark where he was and as the wise men came even bowing down to worship him. And we see the same humiliation and glory throughout his life as he was but a carpenter, as he called his disciples from among the most common of men, and yet as he displayed his divinity by his many glorious miracles. So there was a profound coalescence, we might say, of humiliation and glory throughout his ministry. But we must not miss this this intentional aspect of Christ's coming that God promised it for thousands of years, even prophesying and prefiguring certain aspects of his ministry. It would be one thing if God just did what he did in sending Christ, a a thing certainly in itself of, of great glory. But how much greater the glory, how much greater the revelation of God's own being and character, For God to promise, prefigure, and prophesy His coming, and then to fulfill His plan in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And what do we get to learn from Christ, or about Christ specifically, from the ministry of John the Baptist? It seems apparent, at least likely, that John was writing his gospel with the church itself in mind. In other words, he was writing down a story that many of them already knew, probably even most of them already knew it. We can tell this because uh, in giving the prophecy concerning the coming of John the Baptist, Mark just calls him John. Uh, verse, Verse 4, John appeared. 
baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle John puts it differently. He, he writes, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Can we hear the difference? But that's a more minor point compared to, to what John's ministry really meant. Because John's ministry was really a testimony to the divinity of Christ, that Christ was coming into the world as God himself. On one hand, John the Baptist was a kind of summation of all the prophets in the Old Testament. We might even say his ministry was an exclamation point placed at the end of the full prophetic ministry of the Old Testament. In fact, one one interesting thing to say about John the Baptist is is that he was an Old Testament character who appears in the New Testament. I always like to to point that out. It seems like a clever and helpful way to, to see and understand John and his ministry. He is an Old Testament character who appears in the New Testament. Because John was indeed the last of those men whose ministry was one of prophecy. Like Moses, like Nathan, and Elijah, and Elisha, and uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. However, John's ministry is most striking perhaps when we compare it to Moses. Because what was Moses called to do by God just before the coming of God at Mount Sinai. He was called to prepare the people, even to call upon them to prepare themselves for the coming of God at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, which you'll recognize, comes right before Exodus 20. Not a profound thing to say, but it's in Exodus 20 where we most often find ourselves reading the Ten Commandments of God. And, uh, and there we see the, the terrifying experience of the people as they witness the coming of God just to the very top of Mount Sinai. But before this happened, we hear in Exodus 19 at verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And so, just as Moses answered this call of God to prepare the people for God's coming, so John the Baptist carried out his calling from God. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And as Mark will make clear by telling us of the, of the teaching and the, and the claims of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus that prove the truth of his claims, the coming of Jesus was the coming of God himself into the midst of his people. The same God who terrified his people at Mount Sinai would come walking among them. It would have been a denial of Christ's divinity if God did not call upon his people 
to prepare themselves, to consecrate themselves. At Mount Sinai, they were called to wash their clothes. With the coming of Jesus, they were called to be baptized, to undergo a baptism of repentance, to prepare themselves for the coming of the divine Christ. And this is what we hear in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But here's a question. If John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins, why wasn't John's baptism enough? Why did John's ministry only prepare the way for the coming of the ministry of Jesus? It's because, this, it's because of the same reason that the New Testament follows the Old. Remember, John's ministry was a summation of the office of prophet. John's ministry was an exclamation point placed upon the ministry of the prophets of old. And so the summation and the exclamation point is that repentance alone cannot save the sinner. Over and over again, we see the pattern of Israel's sin, then the ministry of a prophet, and thus repentance and God's blessing being restored to his people. But then sin and another prophet and repentance again and God forgiving his people. So, so yes, John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sin. But how long would it last? With the prophet John's ministry, it lasted, as we know, three short years. Until the same people who went out to John to be baptized by him, confessing their sins, until the same people denied, betrayed, and abandoned Jesus to the cross. Mark provides us with what we might call a a set of bookends uh, as he begins the story with how all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Has, has, has that struck you yet as, as you've heard these words now several times? That, that Mark is recounting that, that John's ministry was a glowing success. It was hugely successful. I don't think that Mark means to say that every last person went out to John to be baptized, uh, to repent and be baptized, but rather that, that certainly some huge number, perhaps even a majority of the people, responded to John's ministry. But at the other end of the story, at the other end of the story, the, the closing bookend is found in Mark 14, verse 50 where it says, and they all left him and fled. Again, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John, being baptized as they confessed their sins. But in the end, they all left him and fled. So that Jesus, as we know, went alone to the cross. Because that's what had to happen for salvation to come to God's people. 
Be it known here tonight that repentance will not save you. If it isn't combined with faith in the crucified and risen Savior, the one Mark has set out to tell us all about. Another clever but helpful way to think about John the Baptist is that his ministry was a successful failure. Uh, If you know the story of Apollo 13, uh, you maybe have heard this expression, the idea of of a successful failure. In fact, John was entirely successful. He had a glorious ministry. He did exactly what God called him to do but it didn't save anybody. It only prepared the way for the ministry of the one who does save sinners. And so it is with the the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Old Testament is filled with glorious events, while the saving ministry of Jesus Christ was always yet to come. There is much gospel in the Old Testament, but it always comes by way of promise and prefiguration and prophecy for the coming of Christ. Otherwise, the the Hebrew Scriptures only teach us even of our own need for more than repentance. Let us each be the best person we can be, but that's not what will save us, because there is always much sin in our lives, and we are in need of repentance over and over again. We need a Savior who was to come and who has now come, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Finally, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In verses 7 and 8, we hear these words of of John the Baptist, which are really a, a summary of his entire message. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this brings us back to the theme of creation, because the word beginning is not the only word in Mark's introduction that ties to creation. Again, to to compare to John's introduction, John uses the words beginning uh, and the word word uh, and also light to tie the gospel to creation. Mark, on on the other hand, uses the word beginning, but also this reference to the Spirit. John doesn't mention the Spirit in his introduction, although it can be argued that the word word is an implicit reference to the Spirit because in Genesis 1, God speaks His Word to create all things and His Word is spoken by His Spirit. But Mark is explicit in his reference to the Spirit and here is a place to correct the idea that the Holy Spirit was not active until Pentecost. We just want to connect the Holy Spirit with Pentecost. Well, granted, Pentecost was a a great outpouring of the Spirit, but it certainly wasn't the beginning of the ministry of the Spirit. We hear references to the Spirit of God throughout Scripture, even in the beginning. So what John is teaching here, again, is that the work of Christ was for 
a new creation. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Spirit is connected to all three of those three ways that God's Word speaks of salvation. It is the baptism of the Spirit that gives the new birth. Going back to John 3, Jesus said you must be born again and, or born from above. But he very quickly added, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Even more, he added, the wind blow, blows where it pleases or where it wishes, uh, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit is connected as well to the resurrection, first to Christ's own resurrection, as we heard in, in Romans 1. But the Spirit then is sent by Christ to accomplish the resurrection of sinners. Those dead in sin are yet raised unto a saving faith in Jesus Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit provided by Christ. Paul writes of this in Galatians 5.25 when he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. But here in Mark 1, the connection is between the Spirit and creation. Here's here's another set of bookends. First, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where does that put us? But at the point of creation, at the beginning of the account even of a new creation. And just like in Genesis 1-1, the new creation will be accomplished by God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, even as he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So as I said in the beginning, I invite you to be reading, rereading, studying the Gospel of Mark this summer. I don't know that we'll uh, make it all the way through Mark by the end of the summer, but on this last Lord's Day in May, uh, here's the introduction, and uh, may God bless us to know our Savior better, hope that's your desire, to, to know Christ better, but also to understand more fully the glory of our salvation and to do so by this study of his word. Amen. Let's uh, pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for the, the four accounts that we get of our Lord and Savior. Help us to love him in this way, by wanting to know Him better and uh, help us to glory all the more in Him as we understand what He did, what He accomplished, how He accomplished even a new creation, and that even now we are, we are by our faith in, in Him, part of that new creation, the, the, uh, the work, the result of, uh, of His finished work. Uh, we grant, uh, uh, we pray that you would grant us um, wisdom and and uh, and commitment to to this cause, uh, to be much in your word, and to be much uh, interested and dedicated to learning more of our Savior. In His name, we pray. Amen.